Um, The reading is from Psalm 1, which is on page 543. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I wonder how many of you are getting nervous as chairs get put out at the front. Is there going to be a volunteer? Good evening. Um, may I add my welcome to those um, given earlier? My name is Blake. It's great to be worshipping back here in the evening together again. Um, I'm one of the church wardens here at HT, and in my day job I work as a kind of project manager. Well, I am a project manager for a kind of fusion IT development consultancy. Um, my wife and I are expecting our first baby in a matter of weeks. So, yeah, great. It was kind of Ollie to rode me on before my brain turns to mush uh, after that time. What I'd like to do in this message is explain, first of all, the series that we're about to embark upon, uh, thinking and feeling with God. The second thing I'd like to do is probe into the meaning of the psalm that we've just had read to us. And third, I would like to see how the psalm leads us to Jesus. I'm indebted in the preparation for this sermon to two sources. Uh, the first, John Piper of DesiringGod.org, where we got um, a lot of the material for this series. And the second is Timothy Keller, whose book, My Rock, My Refuge, Daily Devotions Through the Psalms, was a great inspiration and insight into uh, Psalm 1. So I recommend both of those sources highly to you. Will you join me as we begin in prayer? Heavenly Father, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was 10, my family purchased a copy of the complete Encyclopedia Britannica. I don't know how many of you remember back to the time when knowledge came in hard copy. I was so excited by this. It was so beautiful. It was alphabetized. It was leather bound. And the paper was that kind of it carried the weight of authenticity to it. Um, It took up an entire bookshelf in my family's garage, which denotes how highly we valued the knowledge that was contained within it. But I, as a 10-year-old, was not allowed to touch it. Uh, My greasy fingers was going to dirty the paper and decrease its value. I think that's what I was told. But jokes were on my parents because it came out as a four-CD-ROM version about two years later. Um, but try as I might, because I used to uh, sneak out into the garage and thumb through the, this is an insight into my childhood, thumb through the pages, and I particularly love the flags section. There was something really, it was, it was a different kind of paper again. It was like thicker still, and it was glossy, and I used to try and memorize the flags. And uh, try as I might, though, at the age of 10, to have read through the entirety of the Encyclopedia Britannica, there are certain things that I wouldn't have found in there such as how to live life, what it means to be human, how to have emotional knowledge, 
And it's not something that we necessarily do very well. We tend to keep the things that are subjective and objective quite separate. And I think our education system reflects this a little bit. So when I was at uh, university, I had two people kind of in charge of me. One was a director of studies, and they were in charge of my academic progress. And then we also had a tutor, and they were in charge of our welfare. And you had to meet with them each once at the beginning and end of each term. And a meeting with my director of studies would go like this. Are you going to get a first this year? <laughs> I would look shocked and nod my head dutifully and then walk out the door and sort of laugh. And then uh, I have a meeting with my tutor. The meeting with my tutor would go like this. How are you? Subtext. Is there anything standing in the way of you getting a first this year? <laughs> and we just don't, we don't bring the kind of emotion and knowledge things together well. But I think that's something that's absolutely essential. It's a nod in the direction of what it means to be human. And it's where we begin with the Psalms, a book for thinking and feeling, the subjective and the objective. It's a book truest to our human experience. And it makes sense that it is because it's given to us by God. And so that's why we have this title, Thinking and Feeling with God. And I wanna try and explain even deeper why that title is there with three observations about the Psalms in general. So first of all, the Psalms are meant to be instructive about God and about man and about life. So when we read the Psalms, we're meant to be learning things about God and human nature and about how life is to be lived. In some poetry, it makes no claim to instruct our minds, but the Psalms do. They're meant to be instructive. And one of the pointers to this is that someone is introducing the whole book of Psalms, and it's intentionally placed first such that this whole book begins with, and we read it in verse 2, their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the word for law here is Torah, and the general meaning for Torah is instruction, and in other words, it covers this book, it covers the whole range of God's instruction. It's not just legal ordinances. And so the entire book of Psalms is introduced by a call to meditate on God's instruction. And we can add to that the way that this book of Psalms is seemingly ordered for us to draw the parallel between the books, the five books of Moses. So in the Psalms, we have Psalm 1, 42, 73, 90, and 107, each starting a separate section to the book as a whole, five sections to the book. And we know there are five sections or five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's like they want us to grasp this um, parallel between God's instruction par excellence in the Torah and what's going on here in the Psalms. Luther said, the Psalms are a mini-Bible. And so regardless of the fact that the Psalms originated as the response of faithful persons to God, we can now understand them as God's word to the faithful. So when Psalm 1 introduces all five books in, in the Psalter by saying, the righteous person meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, that probably means these five books of Psalms, not just the five books of Moses, the instruction of the Lord to meditate on day and night. And so that's our first observation. The Psalms are meant to be instructive about God and man and life. That's the objective. It explains the word thinking in the title of our series over the coming weeks. And the second observation is that the Psalms are songs or poems. 
the last person was a little bit shorter. And actually, that's what the word psalms means. That does literally mean psalms or poems. So in 1 Chronicles 16, David appoints Asaph, to whom 12 of the psalms have been accredited, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord before the Ark of the Covenant with music and songs, i.e. with psalms, regularly each day. And so the point of the psalms is to stir up our emotions, to carry the affections of the heart, it's the subjective, it's where we get the word feeling for the title of this series, thinking and feeling with God. And one of the reasons that we as human beings like to express things in songs or poetry is to bring away for our emotions to enjoin with the truth that we're trying to convey, to make that truth mean something to us. And I think it's one of the reasons that the Psalms are so loved by Christians. I was walking with a friend just along um, to church this evening, and they said, you'll be absolutely fine. You're talking about the Psalms. Flipping love the Psalms. So great. And I think maybe not everyone feels the same way, but the Psalms is a, strong, is a deeply loved book through the church. And it does express an amazing array of emotions. Here's just a short list of some of them. Loneliness. I am lonely and afflicted. That's from Psalm 25. Love. I love you, Lord, my strength from Psalm 18. Sorrow, my life is spent in sorrow, from Psalm 31. Regret, I'm sorry for my sin, from Psalm 38. Contrition, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, Psalm 51. Discouragement, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me, from Psalm 42. Exaltation in your salvation, how greatly we exalt. Psalm 21. Joy, you have put more joy in my heart than when they have their grain and wine abounding. From Psalm 4. In your anger, do not sin. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. My eyes waste away because of grief. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. You get the idea. And Athanasius wrote, whatever your particular need or trouble, from the same book you can select a form of words to fit it so that you can learn the way to remedy your ill. Uh, Alec Motier, who used to be the principal at Trinity College, wrote, the Psalms put their undeviating understanding of the greatness of God alongside our own situations so that we may have a due sense of the correct proportion of things. Every feature and circumstance of life is transmitted into the Lord's presence and put into the context of what is true about him. So more explicitly than all the other books in the Bible, the Psalms are designed to awaken and shape our emotions with the instruction that they give. And we can add to that one more observation about the Psalms in general. So we've had thinking and feeling. The third is that they're inspired by God. They're not merely the word of man, but they are also the word of God. What that means is that God guided what was written and arranged the Psalms to teach truth, and they give right direction to our emotions. And one of the reasons that we believe that the Psalms are divinely inspired and trustworthy is that Jesus does. So in Mark 12, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus believed that David spoke by the Holy Spirit. Or in John 10, he quotes Psalm 82 and says, Scripture cannot be broken. And in John 13, he quotes Psalm 41 and says, The Scriptures will be fulfilled. So Jesus has implicit faith in the reliability of the Psalms. And that really accounts for the third part, thinking and feeling with God. That means that the words of the psalmist are both man's word and God's word. What man expresses, God is expressing for his purposes. And therefore, when we read and sing these psalms, our hearts and minds are being shaped. So that's our aim for this next few weeks, to meditate on the psalms, to have our thinking and feeling shaped by God. And so we can turn now to Psalm 1, and we'll see kind of confirmation for much of what we've just actually seen about the Psalms in general. And for time, I just want to limit that uh, to two questions uh, to make two observations from the Psalms themselves. So the first question, why does the Psalm begin, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers? Why not just say, don't scoff, don't sin, don't mock? Why draw attention in the first place to the wicked or the sinner or the scoffer? You know, I was always taught at school, don't define something in the negative, define it in the positive. So let's start by saying what blesses a person. But I think the psalmist is doing this so that they can draw a contrast, not of wickedness versus righteousness, but of being influenced by one place versus being influenced by another place being shaped in our thinking and our feeling by the wicked and the mocker and the scoffer versus being influenced by the law of the Lord. So verse one, it's set up for this contrast from verse two. Don't give your attention to the world, the wicked, the sin, and the scoffer so that you start to delight in their ways, verse two, but delight yourselves in the law of the Lord and on his law meditate day and night. And I find the imagery of the verbs in this really helpful. There's this kind of progression of walking to standing to sitting. And I think um, it's kind of helpful to conceptualize through very bad acting what that looks like a little bit. So, And what's kind of going on here? (laughs) I've ended up in the seat of scoffers. But more to the point, I've started to give my attention to something. As I've gone along, it's caught my attention, and then eventually I've kind of paused, and I started to give more of my attention to it. The Psalms would say maybe meditating it. And I've ended up in this place where I'm here and I'm delighting in the thing that's in front of me. I'm, I'm here because I enjoy it. I didn't end up here out of duty. I didn't end up here because I thought, oh, today's the day where I must scoff and I must sin. So. Over to the seat I go. It's just one of those things that as we get captured by the way of the world and we start to look at more of what the world has to say to us, it awakens our delight. It starts to become what we want to chase after. And so what's the antidote? Maybe it's walking, being captivated by and ending up meditating on something different. The law of the Lord, maybe. 
Just as the pleasures of the world are awakened by meditating upon them and taking our delight in them, so too the pleasures of the word awaken our delight in the things of God. And it's what the Psalms really are designed to do, to inform our thinking in a way that delights our hearts. Meditating day and night leads to delighting, and that frees us from the pleasures of the sinner and the mocker and the scoffer, to be delighting in the things of God. So the first two verses in this book confirm what we've seen. This whole book's designed to shape through thinking, through meditation, to shape our feeling and become our delight, to make God our delight. But here's the second question that Psalm 1 turns up. Why doesn't verse 3 then say, when you meditate on God's instruction in the Psalms, delighting in what you see, then you won't act wickedly, then you won't sin, then you won't scoff. That would be a nice round off. You know, don't be influenced by there, be influenced by here, and then you'll have it sorted. And I think the answer is that the psalmist wants us to see that the life of God is like a tree bearing fruit rather than a laborer picking fruit, which is very abstract, so I'm gonna try and take something different from Paul. The Christian life is the fruit of the spirit, not the works of the law. So we read in verse three, they're like trees planted by streams of water that yield fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. In all they do, they prosper. It's as if there's this picture of the Christian life. There are streams of water, the life of God flowing through the word of God through the Psalms. And we're planted alongside by God's sovereign grace. And our roots reach down into that water and it makes our leaves green during drought and it makes us fruitful when others are barren and we have food that the world doesn't know not of. But drawing up from that river isn't mechanical or automatic. The work, the way those roots work is in the Psalm through meditation. That's what draws the water up. Meditation on the Psalms results in delight, spiritual pleasure, what we see of God and man and life. And from this delight comes all kinds of changed attitudes and behaviors. And that battle to avoid the counsel of the wicked and the way of the sinner and the seat of the scoffer, the battle to be righteous and holy and humble is a fight won by delight. And it's nourished through meditating on God's instruction in the Psalms day and night. Which leaves us very little time to ask our final question, what about Jesus? How does the Psalm lead us to Christ? And I think here is one way. The word righteous in verse six sort of presses us forward to Christ as our righteousness. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So only the righteous survive the judgment in the end. And that begs the question, who is righteous? And we can turn wider in the Psalms for instruction. So Psalm 14, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one, which Paul quotes in Romans 3. And we can look at Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer resoundingly, none. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And we could look at Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the righteous, it seems, are the sinful who can somehow be counted as righteous when they're not righteous in themselves. And how can that be? How can 
a righteous God, not mark iniquity? How can he not count sin? How can he not require perfect righteousness for his perfect heaven? And the answer is, he does mark iniquity, and he does count sin, and he does require perfect righteousness for his perfect heaven. And that's why the psalm, with all the psalms, I think leads us to Christ, who was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. God did count our sin, but he punished it in Christ. He did require righteousness, and he performed it in Christ. In Romans 10, we read the goal of the law, the goal of the Psalms, is Christ for righteousness for all who believe. And this gospel truth is part of that living water that flows into the roots of our lives. It's part of what we meditate on day and night when we read and sing the Psalms. It's one of the sources of our sweetest delight, seeing Christ. And over the next five weeks in the evenings as we explore these Psalms, May we delight in that gospel river. May God shape our thinking and shape our feeling so that we bear the fruit of Christ-exalting love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and generosity and self-control. That's our journey. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for what is an incredible book. Thank you for your words to inspire our hearts, to awaken our delight, to bring truth. Father, we pray that you would draw us deeper into your word, into the Psalms. Through it, you would awaken our delight in you again, where we have grown tired where we have grown cold, where we've started to do so many things in our own strength. Help us to see you afresh. Help us to draw up water from your living streams. Help us to see the world with a fresh light because of the life that you bring. And we don't take for granted this gift and we pray that you would unlock it to us. And for anyone, Lord, who's finding it difficult to read your word, I pray that tonight will be an encouragement to pick it up once again, to find in it life and to find in it you. Would we all be strengthened, Father, through what you have to say to us in your book? Amen.